Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Marshall. And I'm Ellie, and today we're sitting down with Omar Bartov. He's the Samuel Pizer Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. Dr. Bartov graduated from Tel Aviv University in St. Anthony's College at Oxford. Dr. Bartov is a leading expert on the crimes committed by the Wehrmacht during World War II, and he is also an expert in the relationship between total war and genocide. In addition to his academic works, Dr. Bartov recently wrote a novel called The Butterfly and the Axe, which will be available for purchase later this year. Thanks so much for sitting down with us today, Dr. Bartov. It is truly great to have you on campus. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So while prepping for this interview, I learned that your father was an award-winning author and journalist. Uh, Did your father's career influence your decision to become a historian or impact your career in any way? That's a very good question. Yes, my father was a journalist, a writer, a playwright. He also studied history and loved history. Um, So I grew up in a home, and my mother was also very interested in history and in literature. And so I grew up in a home where we spoke a great deal about politics, about history, about literature. Um, But I would say that my father um, tried to dissuade me from writing fiction. He said it would be much better to be an academic. It's safer as a career. You can get tenure. Uh, And I was tempted to write. Uh, And so my own career has been, in a way, tilting between one and the other. I wrote two novels in Hebrew in the 1980s, and then I took a long pause and wrote a fair amount of scholarship. And recently I've been going back to fiction as well. Mm-hmm. And was there anything that inspired that shift back recently to fiction from your kind of more scholarship works? It's been a gradual process. So in the history that I've been writing, uh, I've been focusing also on issues that I would say are related to my family and myself. So in 2018, I published a book called Anatomy of a Genocide, The Life and Death of a Town Called Buchach. That town called Buchach is where my mother was born and spent the first 11 years of her life. And so although I wasn't writing about my family, I was writing about the town that my family came from and most of my family, which stayed behind, was murdered. Um, My mother left in 1935, but most of the extended family stayed there and in other towns uh, and were there during the Holocaust and none of them came out. So there was a growing interest uh, in that issue, but there was also something else I would say, uh, which had to do with my own view of how do you write history. And I became increasingly interested in what I call first-person history, where you see history not from the top, but from below. You see it through the eyes of little people, those that history is enacted on. And in that sense, you can also become involved yourself because you're also a subject of uh, that same history or the repercussions of that history. So your upcoming novel, The Butterfly and the Axe, is an investigation into the murder of a Jewish family in a remote Ukrainian village in 1944. So even though the characters investigating this murder are three generations removed, their lives seem to have been pretty significantly affected by this event. And I was just wondering if you could speak more about the transgenerational effects of trauma, um, especially in the Jewish community today. Yes, so, so indeed, um, the novel um, tries to do two things. 
One is to recover an event that we know happened, but we don't know what exactly happened. And the other is to see how that unknown event, that event that has not been recorded, uh, nonetheless had a, an influence from one generation to the next, and the influence has been in part really to warp uh, people's identities uh, without knowing exactly what it is that happened there. Um, that did, there, there is a fair amount of literature on the second generation, those who grew up uh, with Holocaust survivors or even grew up, say, in a country like Israel where there were many Holocaust survivors, even though their own parents were not, uh, but were influenced by the general atmosphere of that. Uh, but I believe it's gone beyond that, also to the third generation. Uh, in the novel, I'm not interested only in the third generation of Jews, but also of, so to speak, the other side. So the two characters, one is Jewish-Israeli, and the other is British-Ukrainian. Uh, and I'm interested in the extent to which what happened in that village, in which both families were implicated, had this long-term effect on them. And the extent to which one can say that if you can come back to the scene of the crime, so to speak, as a third generation, you both can, to some extent, overcome that kind of warping of your own life, and you can come to some kind of reconciliation. Uh, at a distance of several generations. So, so that's really what I try to do in the novel. And I believe that there isn't enough um, literature on that, uh, both as literature, as fiction, but also as scholarship. Yeah, so kind of on a different note, Ukraine, which is the setting for several of your books, has one of the bloodiest histories when it comes to Jewish people. And I was wondering if there had been any sort of historical accounting for that in Ukraine, and if there was any pressure amongst Jews in Ukraine currently not to kind of rehash this history and bring it up uh, at this current moment with the war with Russia. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a good question. So uh, on, on, on the first part, Ukraine has had a very hard time coming to terms with what happened in World War II. Um, Ukraine suffered terribly in World War II. Uh, Ukrainian Christians, communists, uh, suffered a great deal. Uh, but there was also um, a fair amount of collaboration between Ukrainians, especially Ukrainian nationalists, and especially in the western parts of Ukraine, which is the area that I studied, um, between them and the Germans in um, the murder of the Jews. Um, the irony here is that under communist rule, until 1991, when the Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, uh, you couldn't talk about that. Uh, this was not a topic. Um, we were all victims of the fascists. Uh, we all fought them together. There were some bad apples, but, you know, we don't talk about particular victims. So everyone was a victim. Everyone was anti-fascist. Um, after 1991, when Ukraine became independent, Ukrainians could finally talk about those they saw as liberation fighters. Um, People that under the Soviets, you would call, you know, fascist dogs, collaborators. The problem with that is that those same people that became the new heroes of independent Ukraine, are, um, many of them are those who uh, participated 
uh, in the murder of the Jews, as well as, by the way, in the ethnic cleansing of the Polish population in that area. So they had a lot of blood on their hands. And it's been very hard for Ukrainians who have been celebrating their independence to come to terms with the fact that the same people they admire are people who were also mired in genocide. Um, I would say that in the last few years in Ukraine, there had been a growing attempt to come to terms with that period. In much of Ukraine and even in West Ukraine and even in the town that I studied over the years since I started going there. Uh, it's, you know, it takes time, but there has been an effort to do that. Uh, the war that is happening now uh, has made everything, it's unpredictable what the result of that will be for Ukrainians in terms of remembering that complicated past. I don't think there's pressure, I don't know that there's pressure on um, Jewish Ukrainians right now. I think there's a major wave of patriotism in Ukraine now for understandable reasons. And people who had a certain sympathy for Russia, many Ukrainian Jews, as you may know, spoke Russian, not Ukrainian. Uh, they came from the big cities. Uh, and there has been a turn toward Ukraine, toward Ukrainian nationalism because of this illegal invasion and criminal invasion by Putin of Ukraine. So um, I, I don't know that that has been an issue. It may be in the future. So continuing to talk about the recent war in Ukraine, um, in a Wall Street Journal article, you talked about how Russian narratives of World War II are very distorted, which has allowed Putin to continue to really demonize Zelensky and, and compare him even to Hitler. Um, so I was wondering if you think that Russian efforts to you know, demonize Zelensky have taken an overtly anti-Semitic turn, um, and if you fear that Zelensky's leadership will engender an anti-Semitic backlash um, as well. No, I mean, I don't think so. What, what, what I think is the case is that, to some extent, because Ukraine had trouble coming to terms with a past where Ukrainian nationalists, heroes in the nationalist sense, had also been complicit in the Holocaust, uh, they opened the way for Putin to try and use that to say that his attack on uh, Ukraine is really an attempt to denazify Ukraine, which is nonsense, of course. Um, what, to a large extent, defangs this is the fact that Ukraine had elected a president who is of Jewish origin. And this did not come up in the, in the election campaign. I mean, pe people didn't speak about the fact that Zelensky is, you know, Jewish. Uh, it came up only because of the Kremlin's attempt to say that uh, Ukraine is being taken over by Nazis, and that's why they're attacking it. So in that sense, I think that uh, the question is not whether there's anti-Semitism in Russia or whether there's anti-Semitism in Ukraine. There's some in both. The question is, how is it being weaponized by the Russians, and how is it being weaponized by others, say people who um, oppose uh, support for Ukraine and claim that uh, in Ukraine there are neo-Nazi elements and therefore the West should not be supporting Ukraine. Um, 
But I don't think that this is right now the main issue. I, I think the main issue right, right now, the way I view it, is that um, Putin has a particular narrative of Russian history. Uh, it's a kind of imperial Russian history. Russia is not really Russia without Ukraine, without Belarus. Um, and that he, by right, has to have those parts of Russia back. Um, that is a Russian view of the past, that Ukraine was also part of Russia. Ukrainians are little Russians, right? That's how. And the Ukrainian story is a story that Ukraine has been trying to become an independent country since the 17th century, often in very bloody, difficult uh, wars and struggles. Um, what role the Jews play in that? Yes, they play a role because... From the 17th century, um, in the first uprising of the Cossacks and the Ukrainian peasants, many Jews were massacred. Uh, so there is a complicated Jewish narrative of that. But I don't believe at all that Russian, uh, that Ukrainian nationalism today is at all about that. The way Ukraine sees itself today and presents itself today is as a country that is not about ethnic nationalism, but about U Ukraine as an entity, about civic nationalism, and that Russia is trying to destroy that because it sees that as a threat to the kind of authoritarian rule that Putin has imposed on Russia itself. Yeah, so switching back domestically now, uh, Holocaust education has been declining across America, and according to a 2020 study, almost two-thirds of U.S. millennials and Gen Zers do not know that six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust. What would you say to a millennial or Gen Zer who does not think that the Holocaust pertains to their world today? And are there any policy recommendations for public education or curriculum that you would recommend to address the lack of knowledge concerning the Holocaust in younger generations? You know, my, my main recommendation uh, in American education is that uh, one should teach more history. Uh, not just the history of the Holocaust, but more history. I, I teach history, and I've been teaching history for decades in the United States. I've been te teaching at Brown since um, 2000. Um, and I'm struck by the fact that we have very bright students, like you guys, um, very good education. They come to college, and they simply don't know history. Uh, and not the Middle Ages, not Roman, but the history of the 20th century. And they don't know geography. They don't know where countries are. Uh, if you don't know history, you live in the present. You don't understand where things have come from. Why, if we see now the rise of authoritarianism, of anti-Semitism, of fascism, um, in part, this has to do with the fact that people, of course, they cannot remember what happened because it's, it was 70 years ago, but they don't know. They think that all of this is new. And this, the teaching of the Holocaust is part of that. I don't think it's a problem simply of not teaching the Holocaust. I think it's a problem of not teaching enough history. So in some of your other scholarship, you focused on the recycling of anti-Semitic stereotypes in film. And I was wondering if you think the recent rise of anti-Semitism, particularly in America, is rehashing these kind of same old anti-Semitic tropes, or if there's something new that's emerged in recent years and how Jews are being portrayed? Well, it, it is clearly rehashing the stereotypes. Uh, curiously, as I wrote in this book, I mean, the stereotypes hardly ever change. 
there's, there's a set, a given set of stereotypes, certainly since the 19th century, they're very, very similar. Uh, and those of the 19th century, which is when anti-Semitism as a term was invented only in the 1870s, uh, they themselves drew a lot on traditional anti-Jewish animus. So the stereotypes themselves are very similar and, and they're not interesting. What is interesting is why does this occur again? What is this phenomenon that every once in a while, this kind of prejudice reappears? Uh, it's hard to explain why, of course. We don't exactly know. But I would say that it is, again, part of a much larger issue. I think we live in societies now where there is a growing sense of disaffection with democracy. There's a growing sense uh, by large sections of the population that they've been left behind, that they were made promises that were not kept by people who told them that it's going to be a much better world, that they think their children will not have as good a future as they had hoped they would, um, and that they feel that there's a great deal of corruption in the system, that there are people who are getting rich and people are being left behind and becoming poor. When, when people live in that state, they start looking for scapegoats. And when you look for scapegoats, then you look at the sort of, you know, the, the arsenal of images that you have. And one of them is Jews. So we say, oh, there's so many rich Jews. There's so many Jews in Hollywood. There's so many Jews in the State Department. Whatever you might say, or oh, Jews have double loyalties. They are Jews support Israel. Therefore, are they real American patriots? All of this comes up just as much as anti-black sentiment, as anti-Hispanic sentiment, as, a, as again, sort of return to um, um, prejudice against women, prejudice against immigrants, xenophobia. These occur in societies that are filled with growing anxiety about their own future and growing resentment. There's an historian, uh, he passed away, if, if, a few years ago, Fritz Stern was for many years at Columbia University. He wrote a book many years ago about the politics of resentment in late 19th century Germany as the origin of the rise of fascism and Nazism. And we see now, right now, a politics of resentment in the United States, in many countries in Europe. Uh, that is something that one has to think about. What is it in the social economic system that we have created that makes for that? Uh, if you only look at the, at, the, at the symptoms and you don't look at the causes, then you won't understand what it is. So what this calls for, from my point of view, is to rethink our educational system and to rethink the economic system that produces this sense, which is not entirely wrong, of growing social economic injustice. So unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Bartow, for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry.